0: Welcome to Inside Investing. My name is James Marley
1: from Livewire and I'm Graham Hen from Cufflinks. In this week's podcast I'll be looking at goals based investing and I'll also touch on the benefits of investing overseas.
0: I'll be touching on a conversation I had with a couple of fund managers about where the best opportunities on the ASX might be and it turns out it's in one of the most unloved sectors right now and I've also picked out uh, an article on one of Australia's favourite topic which is the housing market and is it going to crash.
1: I look forward to that James and as always we will be giving some insights into some upcoming articles on both Livewire and Cufflinks and we've each picked out a little quirky item from the world of finance. So James you go first, let's kick off.
0: Well one of the fascinating things that we have in the past week on Livewire was two fund managers talking to us about two different sectors on the ASX, which one's massively in favor right now, and that's mining services. So mining is back in in vogue, and mining services companies are having an absolute tear. And on the flip side of that, we asked them to run their eyes over uh, discretionary retail stocks. Now, as (laughs) most people would know, Amazon opened its doors in Australia last week. And so we said, listen, there's one sector that's hot, one sector that's not. Where do you guys see the best value? the the speakers were Prasad Patkar from Platypus Asset Management and Andrew Mitchell from Ophir and they both agreed that really the the cycle and the momentum remains behind mining services at the moment that's it's in a real sweet spot at the moment and um you know companies have come out from near-death experience they're not going to die good money's been made and in that part of the market they were really saying listen the cycle remain strong supportive of the best companies in the sector right. but you need to tread very carefully because expectation has moved up quite a lot for the market they use the example of maca mining services a company that was on a real tear issued a downgrade and was punished severely right. so right. Um, i've definitely noticed a lot of articles talking about the mining sector and mining services being in vogue just be careful they're talking about the fact that expectations are very high in that part of the market On the flip side, when we pressed them about uh, the discretionary retailers, they both agreed that the expectations now about the impact of Amazon have forced the ratings on these companies down so far that there's some really good opportunities. And and when we pressed them on where would you find the most amount of gems or or potential uh, good stock opportunities, they were both firmly of the opinion that the discretionary retail sector in Australia had been sold down so heavily, right, and that there were a number of companies that were now looking really attractive that had been dragged down by the overall market malaise and the concern about the arrival of Amazon, that actually felt that, you know, there were some really good opportunities there.
1: And look, I find it quite difficult to work out the implications of, of Amazon, and I'm, I'm wondering if this is you know, me as a baby boomer, so I'll ask, uh, I'll ask uh, you as a millennial. There are some things I just don't want to buy online. I, I don't actually think I don't want to buy clothes online. I don't think I'll buy groceries online. I like to go and look at the f- fruit. I don't want to buy shoes online. I like to try them on. Is that, am I the old guy who's not? No,
0: is, I think with, with shopping, like I love, I, I, do, I actually quite enjoy going to yeah. the, for the fresh produce. What I do use it for a lot, and I hate shopping. But all of the suppliers that I, I use already exist and have really convenient same day or you know next few day delivery, return services. And yeah. when I wanna buy stuff online, anything from my surfing equipment, wetsuits, right. I buy my running shoes, I know what size I need now, right. they get delivered. So I haven't been a massive Amazon convert. And yeah, I think that, that was, the, it, it's obviously gonna take its time to roll out. The feedback from these guys was that it's probably a bit overcooked. It's moment. going to
1: be interesting to watch. Look, I uh, recently been looking into what's uh, called this gold-based um, advice, and there's a an, there's a new association in Australia called AGBA, the Association of Gold-Based Advice, and it's become quite a big trend among advice companies. So I thought I would just mention it without. Without going into too much detail traditionally financial advice is that someone goes to see a financial advisor and they talk about the risk tolerance so if someone is is willing to have volatility in the size of the portfolio then normally depending on age and uh, other factors normally they 'll get a more aggressive portfolio or if they 're conservative they 'll be uh, defensive with this goals based advice, it starts from a fundamentally different point. They ask the question how do you want to live or what are your goals in your life and very often the the conversation will be about do you need a certain amount of money a year 50 grand a year Um, do you want to achieve cpi plus you know three percent per year and have that sort of conversation about where the person's lifestyle is how much do they need to save to achieve the goal rather than just maximize returns And one of the slides put up at this conference recently was a Vanguard slide. And the question was, how do you primarily measure the value received from your advisor? And 35% said the sense of security or peace of mind. 23% 23% said knowledge of my personal financial situation. 20% said progress towards my goals. And only 14% said investment returns. And yet think about how much in our industry we focus on investment returns. Mm. So there's this sort of interesting movement in advice and it's worth people thinking about where they stand on, on, these, uh, on these issues.
0: I think the, the way that you frame those questions is a really, I've he- heard a few presentations along these lines and it makes a lot of sense. My understanding is that the challenge of creating products that deliver into the objective of the gold space device is where some of the, the challenges are the challenge, really coming yeah, about. Yeah, that's right. Well, Graham, we're gonna get into what we call the reverse review, which is the, the segment of the show where we look at a couple of the articles that have been interesting and published on our respective websites. Why don't you kick it off with investing offshore?
1: Yeah, so on the weekend edition of, of Cufflinks, um, we published an update on listed investment companies. So I'll make some comments about, about licks, but many of these are equally applicable to ETFs or unlisted trusts about the benefits of investing in, interna- in international exposure. So an article by uh, Peter Ray of Independent Investment Research, and he had gone through all the licks uh, in the 12 months to the 30th of September, And all the best performances were the international uh, funds. And we know that the S&P 500 has been outperforming the ASX 200. Uh, The the funds from PM Capital, MFF, and uh, Platinum have had particularly good years. And obviously, there's a bit of a technology headwind here. And it, again, emphasizes the narrow range of investments you have when you stick to the ASX market and when you look at the asset allocation of say self-managed super funds only about 10% of that is offshore and So the performance of a lot of the SMSF sector would have benefited in the last year with more international uh, Exposure, so I think it's valuable for people to look at Have I got more exposure beyond the banks? Woolworths BHP and the Australian names with with you know term deposits and hybrids and look at LICS and ETFs and unlisted funds and see if there's room in your portfolio for some good global exposure.
0: A couple of interesting points that jumped off the page there was that the top performers it seems like some of the tried and tested names were really in full flight during the period reported. Some names Um, from the LIC space that have been around a long time, very well known fund managers.
1: Yeah, Kerr Nielsen having a bit of a recovery from from a few difficult years.
0: And the one LIC you didn't mention is modelled largely off the portfolio of Berkshire Hathaway, which is uh, 75% odd exposure there. But one of the things I was going to ask you was, when I use, when I think about offshore licks, one of the things that I really like about them is that they provide, there's a number of them that provide exposure to markets that are really hard for direct investors to access. So, specific markets where you can't go into your Comtech account and buy uh, some global shares, some Amazon, some US listed shares, Asian markets, Indian markets, there is more choice. Again, you touched on it a few weeks ago with the ETFs yeah. around LICs that allow you to gain not just offshore exposure, but offshore exposure to markets that you simply, for the retail or direct investor, it's very hard for them to access.
1: Yeah. So, James, what have, you, uh, what have you seen in your reverse review this week?
0: Well, I pulled out an article from Dr Shane Oliver from A&P Capital, and we couldn't, we couldn't help ourselves publishing a, a Will Australian House Prices Crash <laughs> article. <laughs>
1: Always very popular. Yeah, it's one of
0: Australia's topic du jour. I've, I've been surprised at how strong this theme and how much interest there has been in, in, in property. This has been another incredibly popular article on our website. And i think it's been made even more so that there have been some observations that the property market is cooling at the moment what i liked about this article was it it broke it down to some some basic facts and I, i really liked shane introduced the article talking about the fact that people have been calling um the end of australian housing for the past 15 years right and on a topic where people can get very emotional and it seems like everyone's got a an opinion. He he broke it down to a couple of facts. Interestingly, he did note that um, over long term, um, uh, over long term, the long term price of property, Australian prices currently sit 27% above the long term trend, and he also noted that affordability is very poor and the country's debt to income ratio is high. But he called out five elements that he thinks indicate that. It's more complicated than just are prop- property prices high or low? And what would be the key catalysts to see property come off? And he talked about, first of all, don't generalise. You've got Sydney and Melbourne where things are a bit hot. Yeah. Around the country, there's a lot of states and cities where The property market's not moving anywhere near as hot. In some cases, he's talking about a bottoming where there's been a a big pull-off in mining.
1: And even within somewhere like Sydney or Melbourne, very difficult to generalise about the whole city, isn't it?
0: Yeah. He talked about the fact that supply for a long time didn't keep up with demand and the the population growth. It's catching up now, which is why we're seeing all this development taking place. But he believes that the the approvals are are rolling off and it's not going to be an issue. Lending standards, which is obviously one of the big things that comes into focus. I kind of feel like Australian pop- property is like the, the watch pot. Everyone's talking about it. You've got banks are focused on it. It's a political issue. You have APRA talking about it. The RBA knows about it. And I just kind of feel like the stories you hear about rogue lending standards really are the isolated stories. Now, yeah. this, is, this is my sense on it. That's what Shane Olvering had some great charts to support his views there. And so he talked about a few other points, like the fact that rates remain low, unemployment is low. You know, all of these factors suggest that the ingredients for a twenty percent correction aren't aren't in place. Mm. Anyway, it was it was people gave, you know enjoyed the fact that it was quite a balanced view. It wasn't sensational, and uh, it's it was a, you know I, I really enjoyed it. So one that people who have a view or interest in property might want to check out.
1: And it's it's notable that you say that people have been making these observations for you know 15 years and particularly foreign foreign uh, People talking about our market. I think you have to you have to know more about what's happening on the ground here
0: Yeah Have you pulled one out of the archive for us this week?
1: I have James and when you mentioned to me you were going to talk about property. I, I uh, grabbed uh, an article which I wrote a few years ago, which is called what real estate agents don't tell you and and This was based uh, not only on research, but my own personal experience with investment property. At the moment, CoreLogic quotes the gross rental yields in Sydney uh, at 3.7% and Melbourne at 2.9%. And on the surface, you know, that sounds pretty good. But the Reserve Bank a few years ago uh, did a research paper which is called, Is Housing Overvalued? And in that, they calculated that the the running costs of long-term rentals are about 1.5 percent per annum and the transaction costs of going into a property are about 7.3 percent right so even if you average 7.3 percent over say 10 years say 70 basis points that's 1.5 plus 70 that's 2.2 percent over 10 years that will come off your gross yield so you're really talking about if you're going into real estate expect maybe you know, one, one and a half percent as as the net uh, yield. And in this article, I put in some tables based on, I went back through my tax returns for some properties that I had. And really some of the costs of these things, unless you actually have a place, you just don't realise what's going to happen. I've got a table there of all of the sort of one-off costs, which I won't go through. But in in one small apartment I had, it was part of a, Hotel scheme in this hotel scheme. They would charge me $73 every night to clean the room just to clean the room So you can imagine if this place was rented for like 120 bucks a night. It, I mean it wasn't a very big a, a, Apartment did you read the fine then print? That's ridiculous. Seventy-three. It's, it's our, it's our rage. these things um, creep up on you on you later and then you would get things like assist the guests to use the air conditioner Fixed. That was fourteen dollars. <laughs> um, the dry clean, the doona. This was the world's most dry clean doona. I tell you, every month it would be about sixty bucks. Wow. And I can remember sometimes when the um, the costs associated with a night's rental exceeded the night the the rental. So this is just an article about go into property with your eyes open and building on some of the things that your article says.
0: Well, I was just thinking. This is obviously a, a, a bit of a topic that you've encountered a few times, because it relates somewhat to the, the the renting the garage space article oh, that you brought right. up, yeah. and really being aware of of what the fixed costs or these hidden costs that you might not see at the, when you're going into the transaction, because they really can come up and eat away at your returns. It seems yeah. to be a bit of a, a common theme with a few of your articles, Grant.
1: Well, I think it's because if I had to identify, you know, the most misleading statistic in Australian investing, it's this gross yield, ignoring expenses. So I I, I do think it's something people have to understand better, particularly when you're not talking about putting $10,000 in the Commonwealth Bank, right? You're talking about putting a million dollars into an apartment. So you'd better understand what you're doing.
0: I actually went and had a read through the comments at the bottom of this article that you're referring. And a lot of it focused on the conversations or the sales pitches that came from the real estate agents and the numbers that they were quoting and the general persuasive tactics that they were using to suggest that what they had on offer was a really good deal for you um, quoting yield figures and, and income figures etc i thought um the sort of i thought your readership picked up on that as um you know they're surprised that there was less scrutiny put on that part of the industry and i think people are still surprised at that
1: yeah Okay, James, what's coming up on, on Livewire?
0: So coming up this Thursday afternoon, we have a, a pretty special feature for our p- platform. It's at 1.30. It's, it's the live stream of the Future Generation Investment Forum. For people who don't know, um, Future Generation operate two charitable LICs. There's FGX, which is uh, an Australian fund, a fund of funds, and FGG, which is a global fund. So the Future Generation Investment Forum is 12 fund managers from firms like Magellan, Wilson Asset Management, VGI Partners, to name just a few, and each of the fund managers is invited to give a five-minute presentation on his or her single best investment idea. So it's a a really punchy format and you get access to some really exceptional names along the way. Um, Now, the thing that that we also quite like about um, Future Generation is that um, investors get exposure to some great uh, fund managers, but they don't pay the management fees. So the fees that the managers will charge um, get donated to charities. And what it does is it delivers them a consistent and growing stream of annual donations. So the, the managers are basically giving up their, their management and performance fees um, and, that, and that goes to the charities. And to give you a, a sense of what that's delivering, these vehicles were set up just three years ago Um, And the total donation is now at 13.2 million across both companies. And this year they've just given out donations um, totaling 6.8 million. So um, it's for investors to get great ideas, an excellent opportunity, and I love the way that these vehicles are are set up. They're really quite unique. So that's a live stream that's gonna be on the Livewire platform on Thursday the 30th at 1.30 p.m. And you'll be able to get real-time access to those ideas as the event takes place in Melbourne.
1: Well worth listening to, yeah. Graham, what have you got? We've got an article coming up by uh, Julian uh, Beaumont, and he's talking about short selling, and it's becoming an increasingly important part of the market and well worth people understanding the implications for their own investing, even if they don't do shorting themselves. So remember, normally what happens when you go into the equity market, you're looking to buy something because you think That the stocks going to rise shorting is selling something because you think the stocks going to fall and how do you sell something that you don't own you have to borrow the stock from someone in the market you then sell the shares in the market which means you you go short the market and then at some time in the future you have to buy the uh, shares back to return to the person that you borrowed the, the stock from now this is if you think about it, it's a bit of a risky uh, game. People talking about uh, often talk about you know sh- shorting as as if it's riskless, but it's far from that. Because if you if you buy a stock, you put you know five dollars into a stock. The most that you can lose is five dollars. If you short a stock, in theory, you can lose infinite because you might sell it at five dollars and you have to buy it back at a hundred. You know it could go it could go anywhere, and so it's it's definitely not for the Faint-hearted and should be used as uh, by people who have the right skills. Why do people uh, do it? Obviously, they've found a company that they think is overvalued for um, various reasons, which Julian out- outlines. But I thought it's worth mentioning to people in uh, general that it's worth knowing what the shorters are doing with your stock. It may even be an opportunity because if something is heavily shorted it may push down the price beyond its sort of fundamental value and there may be some buying opportunities if the shorters are aggressive and the the ASic website uh, has the proportion of the stocks that of stocks that are shorted on the on the market so you can check whether any stock that you own has got um, has been has been shorted so the basic lesson that julian talks about is he's not encouraging people to uh, short but he's saying that you should be aware of what's happening with short selling for the stocks that are happening in your portfolio so another another part of the market which is worth knowing about
0: i thought one of the interesting things about short selling is when you speak to a lot of professional managers that do use it they talk about the fact that the amount of effort that goes into identifying shorts can be a, a lot more than identifying the longs yeah. and even if they're right the share price can move against them for so long so yeah timing is a huge thing with shorting and often when you ask them how much alpha does it contribute to their total returns it's often quite a small percentage compared to what the longs are generating so it's also yeah you know, in most cases, in, in a lot of cases, that's the circumstance.
1: Yeah. And if you think that sort of equity markets tend to rise over time, right? So if you're shorting, you're sort of betting against that for the stocks that you're in. And also because you have to borrow the stock, you have to pay to yeah, borrow the, the stock. Cost of it, yeah. I'm involved in a, a, a listed investment company, AEG, and they go long and short in, in the same sector and trying to go long the best companies in the sector and going short what they consider the worst uh, stocks in the sector and keep a market neutral position. So there's lots of different ways that you can use shorting.
0: Alrighty. Well, it's the fun part of the show, something quirky that we found this week and Graham, you've got a cracker. I think most people will be interested to understand what you've picked out.
1: Yeah, look, you can't walk the streets of Sydney or Melbourne and and perhaps other parts of of Australia without these bikes being everywhere, right? And they're taking over the world. I was reading that Shanghai has 1.5 million of them, and people literally can't use the footpaths. These things are lying all over the place. And when you walk around the streets, you see them up in trees, you see um, they've been thrown into the harbour or the river, and most people are saying, what, what on earth is going on here? How can anyone make money when the bikes are being trashed? In fact, there's been a lot of attention in the last week because the number three in China, Blue Gogo, has just gone bankrupt after putting about $100 million into the business. The number one and two are Mobike and Ofo. And they have both raised, get this over a billion dollars of funding. Right, that's a hell of a lot of bikes. And so we'll actually put a photo on, on our website to show some of the mountains of bikes that are seen in, um, in China. But I'm just going to make the observation because people say, how can you make money in this? There's a, there's a phrase in uh, technology that's often used that if you don't know what the product is, it's probably you. And that's where uh, The Economist this week is saying these businesses will make money because it's not about the bike, it's about the data and when you're riding along on your bike you're going to get a notification on your smartphone that the shop you're about to ride ride past has got a special deal for anyone who's got who's on the bike and also the data can be sold to people who are planning the cities um, or building buildings or deciding where shops go to see where do people actually travel around the city so of course I'm sure the bike people originally thought, you know, we'll make money by renting out bikes, but what often happens in in technology is the business so-called pivots, this is another lovely word in technology, Mm. it pivots to another business model, and this is about the data, at least as much as the bikes in future.
0: Yeah, well but might need to get a few people riding them to get that data beforehand. <laughs> I, s- I tend to see more lying on the side of the road than I see. It's, I could probably count on one hand the number of people I've seen riding them.
1: It's, it's be- it has become pollution in, in Sydney. Um, so, what have you got for us in your quirky story, James?
0: Well, it's a bit of a follow-up to the Bitcoin article that I had last week where I, I talked about the fact that there weren't that many practical uses for for Bitcoin or it was a bit of a challenge to find them and I've found An entrepreneur in Siberia who has come up with a really practical use. Mining bitcoins is a a, a little processor that does it and it takes up a lot of processing power and it throws off a lot of heat. So people when they're setting up Bitcoin miners look for places with cheap electricity and cold temperatures. So this entrepreneur in Siberia has started building homes where the heat generated from the Bitcoin miners, um, which are these small electrical units, are then plumbed into some water, which then feeds under the floor heating and warms the little houses that he's building. So given that it's cold nine months of the year, um, energy is cheap, he's talking about instead of Bitcoins being in a single place, let's install them throughout the houses and take care of heating the houses at the same time. But get this, mining the Bitcoins is bringing in about $430 a a month US, which is about equivalent to two-thirds of the monthly wage in siberia so i thought that was a little interesting little tidbit that i found
1: you better hope there's no bubble then
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah at the moment that's it (laughs) anyway so that is the end of our podcast for the week i'd like to thank everybody for tuning in to inside investing episode four links to all of the articles and the the quirky tales that graham and i have told today will be listed below the podcast
1: And if you enjoyed the podcast, uh, please uh, send it to a friend or share on social media. And we'll be back next week. Thanks, James. Thanks, Brian.